0: Welcome to the podcast of Grace Covenant Church, where we are transformed by God's grace, connected through relationships, and committed to service. But they ate from the forbidden fruit. Their innocence is extinguished. And so for the ten generations since Adam, sin has walked within us. Brother against brother. Nation against nation. Man against creation. We murdered each other. We broke the world. We did this. Man did this. Everything that was beautiful, everything that was good, we shattered. Now, it begins again. The history of man is the history of war. Um, we're, you picked a great Sunday to be here. We're looking at the story of Noah this week. We're looking at the, the bigger, grander thing here in that, what the big picture story the Bible tells for us. The, the, the Bible's not a bunch of little stories with some morals and maybe some helpful advice. It is a big picture about how God has an intelligent being, has designed the planet and the entire creation, and has a plot line, and we all have a plot. We're all part of the plot. We have places in that storyline. And the greater we know that story, the greater our impact can be in, in, in being part of God's plan. This week, we're going to look at the story of Noah, where every living, breathing creature is going to die, right? Right? and you shall surely die. And that's what happens uh, this week. And, and before we get to that point, we know this, most of us know the story of Noah. Before we get there, we need, to get, we need to go back to the beginning of what was meant to be. Let's review real quickly, if you don't mind, uh, what we looked at last week, the Garden of Eden. In chapters 1, 2, and 3 of the book of Genesis, it's, it's these two pillars, and they're running parallel with each other, and it's about paradise gained and paradise lost. The first couple chapters are paradise gained, and paradise gained means that we could know God and, and to experience him intimately, and, and through eternity we would know that completely. But there was nothing defiled within us, and we could enjoy his presence. We are meant to love our mates recklessly and without any shame or without any fear We are given meaning and purpose in life, a rhythm in life. We were to take these beautiful things and make them spectacular and give them to the Lord and then rest. That's what paradise was, and paradise was lost. All was lost. We lose freedom. Uh, with, With the only freedom that we had, Adam and Eve took from the fruit and violated the only commandment that they had to not take from this fruit that would surely lead to their death and it did. We, we, they were meant to be kings and queen, a king and a queen, and they, and they wouldn't allow that. That wasn't enough, and so they wanted to be like God, and they would surely die. So now everything that would be full of life is now full of death. Everything that could be having pleasure is now filled with pain. Everything that we would want is now going to have to be worked for. Our marriages are now competitive. We lost the rhythm of life. We either work too much or too little. We don't care if it belongs to God or not. And fundamentally, when we look at this section of Scripture from 6 to 11, we are at war. We are at war with ourselves. We hate ourselves. We are at war with our fellow man. We are at war with creation. We are at war with God. We're going to look at what happens here in these next few um, chapters, it's a descent into hell. Luther says that sin is man turned in on himself. In other words, everything we do, the sole motivation for what we do, primally, is that there's something in it for us. We are walking around with a handheld mirror, what is this going to do for me? We cannot fix this. We cannot fix this. It is too deep. It is too part of us now. It is the bent nature of man, not the, the way man was made. And so in the, in the context of, of this story of Paradise Lost, God gives a hope in a promise to Adam, the Adamic promise, and that was that, that someday a son of Eve would be able to crush the skull of the evil one. It would crush evil. It would become victorious. And so, in Genesis chapter 4, we see that Eve's hope is somewhat realized when she gives birth to the first child born. It's Cain, and, Cain, and she says, with the help of the Lord, I have produced this. And some believe, he's, she believes, this is the, the absolute one that will crush the head of the serpent. But it's not. It's the one to come. And Cain has a little brother, and his, a younger brother, and his name is Abel. But to give you a foreshadowing of things to come in chapters you know, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, 10, 11, okay, the very first words spoken by Cain are to Abel when he says, let us go out to the field, and Abel will not return. And that's where we left the story last week. And when we look at now what's happening from 4 through 11 you're going to see a story of salvation, but it has to get very bad before it gets good again. This is a story of a great deal of pride and death and war and sorrow. Every created thing is under the submission of entropy, where all things, if left alone, go towards chaos, every atom, every thought, every motive. If we want anything good anything remotely good, we will suffer the curse of Sisyphus where we will have to push this boulder up an infinite hill. Nothing will be easy if it's desirable. And this descent into hell is an outline. Let me give you just the outline of this descent into hell. There will be a world of death, God's grief, and then God's judgment. A world of death, God's grief, and God's judgment. After we hear the, the lines from Abel, you know, let's, let us go out or to Cain, from Cain to Abel, let's go out to the field. He kills Abel, and he has a conversation with God, and God says, where is your brother? Where is Cain? Or where is Abel? And Cain says this, this is to God, okay? You'd fire him if he were an employee. This is to God. He says, I don't know. Am I my brother's keeper? You do know, And yes, you are your brother's keeper. And so the curse upon Cain looks like this. And the Lord said, what have you done? Listen, listen. Your brother's blood cries out from the ground. And now because of that, you are cursed and banished from the ground, which has swallowed up your brother's blood. No longer will the ground yield good crops for you, no matter how hard you work it. From now on, you will be homeless, a homeless wanderer on the earth. You will be a nomad. You will wander your entire life. And he, he's, he, he's, he's not even remotely remorseful. He just hates the punishment and says, that's too great a punishment for me. How come I can't farm the land? I'll be a hunter-gatherer nomad. I can't live with that. And so God gives him grace and puts a mark on him so that no one would harm him. And that's when we enter the world of death, because from that declaration, that declaration that he would be a nomad, that he would wander, that he would would have to roam the earth, that he could never settle, he would be a tent dweller forever, it says that he goes and founds a city. The first thing he does is just the opposite of what God said for him to do. He goes and founds a city. And one of his descendants, I, we don't know how many descendants, sometimes they don't name every name, but just to give you an idea that this, this individual is a chip off the old man's block, the descendant of Cain, Lamech, is brought up in chapter, uh, I think, four, or I'm, I'm let's see where we are. Yep, chapter four, 17 or so. Lamech, um, he comes along and he's the first person to have two wives. And do you know why he has two wives? Because he can. This is, this is, this is the, the idea of pride swelling, just pulsating. There is no God. I write the rules. Whoever has the biggest club wins. I have the biggest club. Listen to this declaration from Lamech. This is to his two wives. Uh, Adah and Zillah, hear my voice. Listen to me, you wives of Lamech. I have killed a man who attacked me, a teenager for bruising me. If someone who kills Cain is punished seven times, then the one who kills me will be punished 77 times. He is not out for revenge. Let the world know that he has the biggest club. And whoever has the biggest club writes the rules and keeps the rules. He won't just get right life for life. If a teenage boy bruises his foot, he will take his head. He will not take it politely. It will be turn your head away from the violence because Lamech rules the world. Hear this, wives. Know this to be true. I am the man with the biggest club. And that sets the stage for six and seven, or five and six because the idea here is is that if you look at the genealogies in 5 and 6, you'll see that they are somewhat unique in the Bible because they are genealogies of death. They talk about how long men lived, and then they died, and then they died, and then they died. Evil begot evil. Death begot death. And then there is a thud. There is the bottom. This is it, this is how bad it can get. It has been this bad. It has been this bad again. In chapter 6, verse 5, it says And then the Lord observed the extent of human wickedness on earth, and he saw that everything they thought or imagined was consistently and totally evil. Look, look, look at all the all-inclusive terms. And the Lord observed the extent of human wickedness on earth, and he saw that everything, really, every, yes, everything, that they thought and even imagined was consistent and totally evil. And this verse is what brings about the judgment of God that's known as the flood. And a lot of people have a great deal of trouble with this flood with this judgment on all the earth. And I, and, and I can, I mean, right, it, there's, there's a reason to feel that way. Every living, breathing creature on the planet will be destroyed. And I think one of the reasons that, that we have difficulties, especially, it's, it's not been the case in all of, of history, but in our circumstances, you need to know the context in which we debate whether God should judge the planet. This time, your life, my life, suburban United States of America, is absolutely at the zenith of human history's experience of safety and security. We have very little experience with this kind of evil, not, I mean, firsthand experience. And so when we make our decisions, we make our decision, our judgments upon God, they're in theory. And we're wondering where is his compassion and where's the compassion of God with us? And uh, if, if you would just make a, a passing look at human history and see what happens when men with big clubs rule the world and how whoever has the biggest club wins and what they do with that club whether it's genghis khan or hitler or pol pot you name that man and there will be a time in your thinking that you'll ask yourself will someone do something about this madness if you want if just for fun you could read the best selling book the road if if you want put the kids to bed turn out all the lights okay watch the movie this is a small little glimpse of what life is like when whoever has the biggest club wins. This is what it looks like when the extent, let me read it again, when the extent of human wickedness where every thought, every imagined thought is consistently and totally evil. How many books, how many movies, how many genres have we seen a well-meaning pacifist is the lead right in the story while some person, some evil person picks up a stick, picks up a club, and starts killing people, starts doing evil, and what's the, what's the point of the whole storyline? Hey, good guy, <laughs> will you do something? And then when it comes to his living room, then he picks up. There's a time in our lives where we're gonna stop and pray, and we're gonna say, will someone good, will one holy person pick up this club, and we will pray that you will never grow weary, And doing good. Do something about justice. And that's the context of this flood: that every thought, every imagined thing was consistently and totally evil, totally wicked. Now, if you still have a remnant of sorrow, and how can this be right, or wishing this is not the way it has to be, you are in fantastic company. Because one of the themes of today's lesson is for you to change maybe your perspective on this story, but hopefully. You'll change your perspective on God. I think we, we have a different perspective on what's happening in this story. And I think if just one sentence in the Bible will help illuminate what's going on in the heart of God, which will change the way we see the story. Because after it says in six chap- chapter 6, verse 5, we, we see of God's grief. It says in chapter 6, verse 5, and the Lord observed the extent of human wickedness on the earth, that he saw that everything they thought or imagined was consistently and totally evil. And then look what it says. And then the Lord was sorry that he even made them and put them on the earth. It broke his heart. What an exceptionally strange sentence to use attributing to God. And it broke his heart. Some of your translations will say, and he experienced bitter anguish. He was deeply troubled. When we have this feeling in our our lives, we can't eat. We are nauseous. We don't sleep at all. So God is sleepless. He's nauseated. He 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 can't live with this either. Why? Look at this story. Why is he so torn up? Because he has chosen to bond himself to us. He has volitionally said, I will love them. I will love them unconditionally. He he doesn't need us. (laughs) He's God. He doesn't need us. He wasn't lonely in cause creation. He he created all things. He created man in his image. Man was was bent now. And he sees the disparity and this, again, this descent into hell. He sees what's happening, and he and he feels, the point is, he feels deeper. About the remorse here and the brokenness that's happening, than you and I could ever feel. Because because he has chosen to be bound to us. And he feels deeper because we just, when we look at murder, we look at the the victim, right? And God looks at the the murder victim and grieves, and he looks at the murderer and what's happened in his soul and he's grieving, like, like, like the ax that fells the tree is pitted and rusting with the sap from the tree that it took down. No one, no one gets away from these sorts of experiences without, without mar. So even the murderers are twisted and demented. C.S. Lewis wrote in Mere Christianity, the, Jew, or the, the Nazis hated the Jews and so they killed them. And then the Nazis hated the Jews Because they killed them. The Nazis killed the Jews because they hated them, right? Then they had to go to bed at night and they couldn't sleep. They knew what had happened to them by killing them. And then they hated the Jews because they had killed them. That's what God sees here. It's um, um, of mice and men, of mice and men, George and Lenny. Lenny is not well. And and George has chosen to tie himself to Lenny. A couple times in the book, there's some opportunities for George to just run off and be unentangled by Lenny. Lenny is nothing more than an anchor to him. And these are hard times, and he could be prosperous if he would just let Lenny go, but he can't. He is bound to him because he chooses to love him. And then there's a moment where Lenny is now causing so much damage around him that George must end Lenny. And in that moment, in the last scene of A Mice and Men, right, he, he takes Lenny's life and, it's, and, and Curly comes along, he's the antagonist, he's just a thug. He has no idea why George would be so sorrowful, right, right? It's other people, it's, it's another person in the, in the play that says, oh, I get it. I, I see that this was a hard thing for you to do. It, your heart. It, this broke your heart. And what's happening right now in this storyline, you need to hear that all of creation is crying out with death pangs. And it is saying, won't someone do something to stop me? And this grieves God. God does not need us. He is tied to us and so he has chosen to do something about it. He can't hear us crying out anymore and so again, it says, so the Lord was sorry that he ever made them and put them on the earth. It broke his heart and so the Lord said, I will wipe out the human race I have created and I will wipe them out from the face of the earth. Yes, I will destroy every living thing, all of the people, the large animals, the small animals that scurry along the ground, even the birds of the sky, I am sorry I made them. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. One holy family. I will save that one family. That's the context of God's judgment. It is God's broken heart. And so, let us look very carefully at the judgment itself because it's full of irony and poetic justice. Now, you need to know that um, the word um, for corruption is the exact same Hebrew word for destroy. And so I've put them together on the slide, and I'll read it through twice, okay, so that you can understand. I'll read it the first time the way your translations are, and the second time the way it's literally written in, in, the, in the original languages. But 611 through 13 reads this, And now God saw that the earth had become corrupt and was filled with violence. And so he observed all the corruption in the world, and everyone on earth was corrupt, and so that God said to Noah, I have decided to destroy all living creatures. They are filled the earth with violence. Yes, I will wipe them all out along with the earth. Now look, it's the same word in, in Hebrew. It says, and now God said, saw the earth had become destroying and he had filled, and it was filled with violence. And so God observed all the destruction in the world for everyone on earth was destroying things. And so God said, I will destroy all the living things. So, do you, do you see what he's, he's, he's saying? Look, I will destroy the destroyers and all their destruction. Natalie Merchant, 10,000 Maniacs, right? He says, if lust and hate are your candy, then hey, hey, just give them what you want. You want destruction? That is what's in your heart? If every single thought, every imagined feeling in your soul is towards destruction, I can provide that for you. That's what you want. That's what I'll give you. That's the judgment. He is just heaping up for us what we desire from Him. And then the flood. The flood story is an anti-creation story. It is like Genesis chapter 1 in reverse. You see that the the family of Noah and the animals uh, enter the ark, and then they sit and wait, and then here it comes, 40 days. The earth is filled with water from underneath and from the sky above, it is filled. For 150 days, there it is formless and void like it was in the original chapters of Genesis. And then... For 190 days, there is recreation. It says the waters begin to ascend, and then land appears, and then foliage. And then they're able to leave the ark, and then Adam with his family leaves the ark, all the animals leave the ark, and the first thing that Noah does… I'm sorry, I think I said Adam. The first thing that Noah does is builds an altar, has a sacrifice. And God gives Noah three great gifts. He gives all of us, right, mankind, three great gifts with this recreation story. The first one is he gives us government. There should be an institution that is in charge of the big clubs. (laughs) In chapter 9, verse 5, it says, And I will require the blood from anyone who takes another person's life. For if a wild animal kills a person, it must die. If anyone murders a fellow human being, he must die. If anyone takes a human life, that's life will also be taken by human hands. For God made humans beings in his own image. And so this is what's called the institution of government. That there, are set, there, there is an institution of governments that has rules that individuals do not. If I take a life for life, that's vigilantism. That's revenge. If the government does it, it's not. It's part of civilization. I can't put a person in a cage. That's slavery. That's captivity. Right? That's kidnapping. If a government does that, that's imprisonment. They have the right of the, of the sword, he says. This is a gift to keep you people in some kind of boundaries. Then God gives us a promise. He gives mankind a promise. In chapter 8, verse 21, he says, And then the Lord was pleased at the aroma of the sacrifice that Noah had given him. He says, I will never curse the ground because of the human race again, even though everything they think or imagine is bent towards evil from childhood. I will never again destroy the living things this way. And he says, This is a sign of my covenant to you. You know this. This is the sign of my covenant to you. And I'll remember, God says, I will remember this every time after a rain, there'll be a rainbow. And so that all living creatures will remember that I've made this promise, I will not judge the earth with water again. I promise you. This is a formal introduction to covenant giving. This is a covenant giving God. And God says, I will make that promise to you. So he gives government and he gives this covenant to Noah. It's called the Noadic covenant. And then finally he gives a command to Noah. Again, sounds very familiar to us because this is a second creation story. Chapter 9, verse 1 through 3. And then God blessed Noah and his sons and told them, be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth. All the animals on the earth, all the birds in the sky, all the small animals that scurry along the ground and all the fish in the sea will, will look on you with fear and terror. I have placed them under your power. You have dominion over there. I, I have given them to you for food just as I have given you grain and vegetables. Now, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. He gives Noah Adam's mandate. Adam's mandate was originally, take this beautiful thing and make it spectacular and give it to me. Noah, these animals are going to be at war with you. Things have changed. This planet is severely broken, and you will reign over them, and they will fear you. You will take something chaotic, and you will try to make it beautiful, and you'll give it to me. You will try to restore the things of Eden again. You will try to have intimacy with me by trying to maintain your innocence and purity. You will, have, you will lean into intimacy with your mate and be naked and unashamed. Be reckless without fear in your love t- towards him or her. I'm going to put you in charge of the planet, and in that there will be purpose. He gives those commandments back again. You'll have to learn to love all over again. That's the story of Noah. It's the story of a descent into hell. A, w- a world at war, a God in grief, and a God finally doing something about it. He judges the planet. And it ends, with a, it, ends, it ends with an offering and some promises and a garden. It says right after these three things are given that Noah plants a garden. Just like Adam before him. It's a vineyard. And he drinks from the wine and gets stupid drunk and passes out naked and shames his sons because we can't fix this. We are broken. And rainbows and governments cannot be our hope. <laughs> There's people in here, they hope in the government. That won't change a soul God needs to do more, and this series of chapters is an introduction to the more that will happen, more detail, more promises, more interventions by God. That's what the story is. That's how it unfolds. The story of man, the history of man, it's the history of war. We look at every opportunity to take advantage of other people, we look at every opportunity to hurt and maim and, to, and, and injure. And, and that's the story of man. There's a philosopher at, uh, I think, in Virginia. Oh, I'm sorry, at Yale. His name is Nicholas Wolfterstoff, I think. It's a German name. I, we'll call him Nick. He's a Yale professor, and he says, really, the history of man is the history of war. He begs to differ. He thinks so much deeper. He says, why is there history at all? Is that really the story? The history of man is the history of war. Why is there history? If there is a God and He loves and He is righteous and He is righteous and He is just, why is there any history after the fruit? Why not just end it right then, right there? Why is there history? Why is there history with the flood? (laughs) Why is there a family on an ark why doesn't history end there? Why doesn't it end with Bathsheba? Why in the world would history not end with, you saved others, why don't you save yourself? Dr. Nick wonders why there's history, and then he says, it is because of the love of God. He chose to love us, and he says this, He says the history of man is not the history of war. The history of man is the tears of God. The history of man is the tears of God. He loves us and and, and cannot allow us to live without him. He is bound to us. Dr. Nick writes in a book he, his 25 year old son died and he wrote a book called Lament for My Son and this is what he writes. He says the tears of God are the meaning of history. If you don't see God suffering for our sins, you don't know what history is all about. First, the history of the world is the history of our suffering together. Every act of evil pulls tears from God. Second, The history of the world is also the history of our deliverance together. For when God's cup of suffering is absolutely full and over, our world's redemption will be fulfilled. Then we'll be done. The history of man is the history of the tears of God. When you look at today's story, the story of Noah and the flood, I hope today you saw it from a different perspective that it was the broken heart of God that caused that. I hope that you did more than maybe hear the story and understand it differently. I hope today your view of God changed, that he's not Zeus throwing lightning bolts looking forward for the next opportunity, that it grieved him and he heard all of creation with death pangs cry out to him, will someone put a stop to this, keep me from doing this another day. And he said, I will. I will destroy the destroyer and the destructions. I will give you what you want. That's how much he's tied to us. That's how much he loves us. If you come back next week, I'm going to tell you a story of, of God's intervention into a human life that changed all of our histories. The tears of God, Lord Jesus, we um, we don't know you. <laughs> we don't know you. So many of us, we we don't even begin to know of your greatness and your fondness towards us, your dedication to us, which is um, illogical. There's there's no merit to it. There's nothing in it for you, and yet you 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 have bound yourself to us. You are George, and we are less than Lenny, and yet you stay with us. Where Jesus, would you help us, would you help us see you in light of this, of this story, of, of chapter 6, verse 6, where we are breaking your heart in our evil towards one another, in our ambivalence to you, and how sorrowful you are. Lord, let us know that you, let us believe of this great fondness and love that you have for us, that you did not send your son into the world to condemn the world, but those who believed in his name would have eternal life. Let us be drawn to that love. Forgive us, Lord, for the prejudices we have had in the past about you, especially towards this story about your very nature. Let us run to your open arms. Let us enjoy your love for us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. For more information about grace, visit our website at grace360.org.